Welcome once again to The Better's Verdict, a Herbert Smith Freehills podcast on gambling, sports, and crypto law. We have an extremely exciting guest today. He is John Ho, the head of legal and financial markets at Standard Chartered Bank. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen, for helping having me here. I'm glad to be on your podcast today. We're really excited to discuss some of the hot topics in crypto and distributed ledger technology. John, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and, and your interest in this area? Sure. Thank you. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, as Stephen, I've introduced myself. I'm currently the head of financial markets for Standard Chartered Bank, covering my footprint cover global. Uh, we have an offices in New York, London, uh, Dubai, Shanghai, Singapore, Hong Kong. In, in my area, in addition to covering the financial markets transactional work, I have been involved in, in the financial markets reform, Dodd-Frank, the mayor, uh, margin reform, and most recently involved in the world of digital assets, uh, looking at blockchain, digital technology, and smart contracts in particular. Glad to be on this podcast. Great. So today we're going to start out by talking about central bank digital currencies. First of all, these are abbreviated CBDC. Can, can you give some background for the listeners on, on what a CBDC is? Sure. I think a CBDC in its simplest stand is stands for central bank digital currency. And the fact that it sets us apart from other privately issued digital currency is that it is issued by the central bank. So think of it as a central bank money. Instead of having it in a, in a bank notes or coins, it is a form of a central bank money, but uh, issued in a digital form by a central bank, not by any private entity. So, so instead of like dollars, for example, in our wallets, it would be a digital token on our phones from the government? Yes. And I think the, 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 the question, yes, it's, it's, it's going to be a, uh, a, you know, it's going to be a claim on a, a liability on a central bank. So I think the difference between this and stable coins, as you know, the stable coins are issued by private enterprise. So to your point, whether it will be held in the form of a, digital wallet or a sort of a mobile phone. What we see now around the world, uh, the, the Bank of, for International Settlement recent survey have shown that there are potentially up to 86 uh, proof of concept trials, you know, um, you name it, where central banks are looking at the feasibility study uh, trial in looking at uh, some of the experiment on central bank digital currencies. And, mm. and the, the thing we find out is uh, some of them are using what we call the existing payment rails models, using QR code for payments. And some of them in the approval concept are looking at the use of a blockchain or what we call distributed ledger technology in terms of testing the, the hypothesis or the functionality of a tokenized uh, digital money. So when you say there's 86, does it, do you mean 86 different countries looking at this? That's correct. I think this is based on the BIS uh, sort of recent uh, study and reports. So, but I think just to caution that they are on the different various stages of development. Some of them are just looking at it from a, a case study. Some of them are a bit more advanced, uh, are actually doing some experiment. I think the, the large number of them are actually doing some sort of a, a sort of a sandbox or a, a proof of concept, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because just a few years ago, CBDC was very abstract and didn't really attract much interest. 
around the world. There was only a few central banks looking at it. Now, as you said, there's this huge number of countries looking at it. I believe that CBDCs have been launched in some countries. I, I think I read the Bahamas has the sand dollar. So that these are really sort of exploding onto the scene. I think it, some of it was spurred by Facebook announcing that they were going to introduce a sort of central currency. My, my question is, why? What is the problem that CBDCs seek to solve? What's the utility of them? Yeah, I think the the utility of them, a couple of couple of things that's driving the CBDC or interest in CBDCs, and I will bucket them into four main sort of teams. One is COVID, uh, as we know with the pandemic that that is ongoing for the last since uh, year and a half, quite a lot of people are not able to access financial services in this traditional sense. You can't go to a bank during the full lockdown period. And, and, and the government is advocating a movement towards a digital payments, adoption of digital payments. So a lot of studies have shown that the, since the, the COVID, there has been a huge explosion in terms of the adoption of digital payment. That's a trend. The other thing is in terms of uh, the users and consumers, over the years, there's been a re huge reduction of, of uh, consumers using physical cash or coins for making payments in, or, you know, it's, there's a, you know, studies have shown that digital payments or contactless payments have increased. Mm -hmm. uh, the trend relates to the emergence of uh, digital, digital assets in particular cryptocurrencies. Uh, some of them are being used as a means of payment that, uh, that has obviously caused uh, a, a sort of a huge adoption in, in some countries, so to speak. And I think four of us, I think the central banks realized that in the space, rapidly evolving space of innovation in payment, uh, offering a central bank digital currency uh, sort of provides the central bank to enable them uh, to one, uh, to be innovative, two, to also preserve uh, the optionality for consumers to adopt or use central bank digital currency for their daily payments or commerce. So in the United States, for example, the way that it could theoretically work, although we understand that it's it's in a test stage, is it wouldn't replace the cash and the dollars, but it would just be another option that you could have this digital wallet on your phone and you would know that your coins there, not nickels, pennies and quarters, but the coins would be fully backed by the government, as opposed to, you mentioned stable coins earlier, which are coins that can be pegged to real world things like dollars or gold. What would the difference be between CBDC and stable coins? A stable coin pegged to the dollar, for example. Yeah, I think the main difference is you look at some of the sort of papers out there. I think, as I mentioned earlier, if you look at a CBDC, uh, obviously there are different models, but if you st stick true to the true model, a, a central bank digital currency at its simplest uh, sense is a digital currency issued by the central bank. So it is treated as a legal tender that you could be mm. used for a particular country for payments because it's a, it's, a, it's a legal tender in its name. However, in a context of a stable coins, um, obviously you have a number of stable coins out there right now where people are using it for payments or, 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 or remittances. By and large, they're doing it not using the payment rails or the existing payment system like SWIFT, but they're using it via the cryptographic way of, 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 of transferring the value of the stable coins. 
However, um, in recent times, especially regulators around the world, including the SEC and the Fed and the US Treasury, are looking very closely as the uh, what is deemed as globally systemic stablecoins, i.e. stablecoins that are widely used by the public and, and, and could be systemic in nature. Uh, one, there are a couple of concerns that derive at. One is the asset backing of the stablecoins. So the stablecoins, as the name implies, give the impression that it is stable. But <laughs> in recent times, and I think Kristen Lagarde have just highlighted in the speech last week, that in recent times, there have been a number of stablecoins out there that the value of which is not invested in just US dollars. And the composition of the assets underpinning the stable coins, some of these are what we deem as commercial paper. And, 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 and uh, as you note, with, with certain types of commercial paper, depending on its, the rating, it, it, you know, it's very difficult to, to retain the value of par because it's subject to fluctuation of the underlying uh, assets. So I think there are real concerns where, in times of market stress, whether stablecoins will hold its value. As we know, in recent times, uh, there have been a few stablecoins that have broken the buck, but I think there are some more liquid ones that, by and large, still hold its value. But I think what the regulators want to do for globally, widely used systemic stablecoins, uh, there is a need uh, for regulators to ensure that uh, there is proper transparency, proper disclosure, and ensuring that there is the assets underpinning the stablecoins are segregated such that it's, mm. it's, it's in times of stress, uh, it's, it's earmarked and protected from the insolvency estate of the stablecoin issuer. So some of the people that listen to this podcast are online poker players, as I was back in the day, and your discussion of the assets underpinning stablecoins I'm sure hits home with us because what would happen with those online poker sites is people would put in money for poker chips on the sites and then you could win or lose and then you could cash out dollars again. But what ended up happening is the, the money underlying the poker chips was supposedly held safe and secure in separate accounts. It turned out that was not completely true. So people had all this poker money eventually on the site but there was no money underlying it, no real money underlying it in a separate account because some of the, the poker sites you, you know, improperly diverted the money elsewhere. Isn't that a risk with stable coins? Because any I could issue the Stephen Jacobs stable coin and say it's pegged to a dollar. Every coin is worth a dollar. But in the meantime, there could be no dollars underlying it, right? Yes, I, I think this is a, a, a huge debate right now. As you know, this is uh, in the U.S., it's Janet Yellen have said that she's formed a U.S. presidential working group looking at stablecoins. Um, we understand that in the next couple of weeks, there would be something that will come out from the U.S. agencies in terms of some sort of a guidance or a framework, at least in the U.S., on what a, a widely held stablecoin should look like and what are the criteria it should contain, including guidance on, on certain legal or regulatory framework. So this is public uh, sort of announcement that's made by Janet a couple of weeks ago that something is in offing. What we do not know is what the exact details at this stage or the exact timing. So one thing we are aware of is, uh, this is public anyway, that Janet Yellen together with uh, US Treasury, the Fed, SEC, CFTC and FDIC are all collaborating in terms of making sure that there is a consistent framework 
in order to sort of regulate or, or provide a some sort of a, a legal underpinning framework for stable coins to be issued, transparency is, is taken into account, consumer protection is key in, in this whole entire sort of uh, framework. Mm. What about for the financial systems? Do you think there's going to a risk for the, the banks and the traditional financial system by countries adopting CBDC? Um, I think uh, the jury is still out there. And I think in, in all the sort of papers that we've seen from central banks, one of the concerns they have with CDBDC is, you know, whether the, the CBDC is designed in such a way that it might crowd out bank deposits or it might incentivize people to move deposits from banks away to, to, to be held directly with the central bank. And I think um, what the central banks are grappling with at the design level is to look at what would be the optimum approach such that you know, they are able to offer a CBDC, but at the same time, mitigate against bank disintermediation risks, as I spoke about, and also ensuring that it doesn't cause any uh, bank runs where people move funds away from banks into the, uh, you know, into a bank account directly with the, the, the central bank. And I think the model that we've seen in some of the more advanced CBDC projects or even trials, uh, they're moving towards what we call a, a two-tiered approach. So a two-tiered approach is where the CBDC is still a claim on the central bank, but however, the financial institution plays a role in terms of distributing the, uh, the CBDC downstream to consumers, and also they conduct KYC AML uh, sort of responsibility rather than that being undertaken directly by the central bank, because the central banks themselves are not geared or set up to undertake such a huge task. And, and they cited a couple of reasons for that, and ministry burden, and that doesn't really fit within the mandate of uh, the uh, sort of monetary uh, policy or supervisory policy to have a direct uh, sort of contact with sort of consumers, so to speak. So for folks listening that haven't used cryptocurrency, this whole idea of a central bank digital currency, digital dollars on their phones that aren't in the, a bank account and they can use for spending must seem very abstract. Do you think that these sorts of currencies will be highly accessible and used because access to financial markets is sort of one of the key drivers of economic stability and eliminating poverty. And I think on the one hand, people say, well, they will be extremely accessible because anyone can use the CBDC. But on the other hand, it might be a little esoteric for a lot of new adopters. Yeah, I, I think in, in terms of CDBCs, uh, you, you brought a very good point. And I think one of the key principles that the, the central banks are looking at is whether it must be widely accessible to, to the public. And I think uh, what they're grappling with is in the context of uh, CBDCs that, that adopt new technologies, uh, there is also a concern about what about people who are not tech savvy, uh, who don't really have access to a mobile phone or, or, or a mobile wallet, they should not be excluded because we talk a lot about financial inclusion, but we also need to bear in mind that you know whatever sort of CBDC form they do, it doesn't exclude a class of people. So in a couple of uh, trials that we have seen a proof of concept, central banks are also toying with the idea that if we were to, to issue a CBDC, uh, there is also a concept called a, a, a sort of a, a device that can be used off-chain, i.e. that uh, you could use CBDC stored in 
a storage value that 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 could be used uh, that's widely accessible. But obviously, uh, this is still in trial because the idea is uh, <clears throat> you know, in case of any outages or, or, or inaccessible access to Wi-Fi. Uh, using a device that that has storage value could also enable you to to make payments uh, in in, a, in in that scenario as well. And I think that's important because any CBDC that that is to be accepted widely for use has to meet a couple of criteria. One, accessibility, ease of use. Um, you know, and uh, the other thing is important is uh, it also lowers the barrier of entry with respect to making payments. Um, and one of the things that uh, CBDC is trying to achieve with quite a number of projects out there is the concept of cross-border remittances. As we note with the cross-border remittances right now, it's a very fragmented market. Um, you, it doesn't operate on a 24-7 basis, unlike cryptocurrencies or stablecoins. And I think what they want to achieve is, is to create a framework uh, that a CBDC could be utilized or used on a 24-7 basis and on a cross-border basis. And henceforth, you see a number of projects led by the Bank of, for International Settlements uh, in terms of looking at what we call uh, multiple bridge CBDCs, where a number of central banks get together to cooperate to ensure that uh, issues such as interoperability of their currencies, programmability features in their CBDCs could be used uh, you know, to enable uh, some policy decisions as well, which is, which which that option doesn't exist with physical notes or or, or coins because you can't program your current physical bond uh, notes or coins. But in, in the concept of a, a tokenized digital money, uh, one of the compelling attraction is 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 that the ability to program uh, money uh, for use. And I think if you look at China, for example, uh, when they did a couple of uh, trials in the CBDC. In, in one scenario they did was that uh, people could, could use the CBDCs for a limited purpose and they wanted to see from a behavioral perspective whether that drives uh, certain people to use CBDC in a manner in which uh, it, was, it was thought not possible under physical notes or coins. Mm, interesting. Mm. Um, you brought up the sort of cross-border um, um, payments. Of course, one issue with cryptocurrency is um, is that it can go cross-border so seamlessly that it implicates issues related to money laundering and sanctions compliance and other sorts of issues that governments, and especially the U.S. government, typically monitor through the banking system and the traditional banking system. Would CBDCs be regulated in a similar way to the traditional banking system, or would it be more like the Wild West of cryptocurrencies where they would need a whole new framework? Yeah, I, I think you brought a good point. In a, in a well-designed CBDC, which a number of banks are looking, uh, a number of central banks are looking at, uh, is to uh, sort of balance the the, 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 the the concern about making sure you respect the privacy of the consumers, respect to the transaction, but at the same time, uh, they have the ability to sort of trace uh, and provide surveillance for illicit activities, for example, anti-money laundering, uh, financing of, for, for, for terrorism, and, and, and I think for other illicit activities as well. So I think what a CBDC is doing, it doesn't provide absolute anonymity. 
But what it does provide is respect privacy in most circumstances, but do allow the regulators to have a look through in the context of illicit activities, as I mentioned, anti-money laundering, uh, you know, counter financing on, on terrorism. I think these are the kind of stuff that they, they will be concerned of. And most recently, you see some of the ransomware. Uh, the regulators have been quite uh, 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 sort of focused in ensuring that uh, you know, cryptocurrencies or, or are not used for purposes of, of ransomware. If they are, uh, you could see that very quickly that uh, they, you know, a number of parties have got together to block some of the accounts in the most recent incidents, able to recover most, if not all of the sort of uh, cryptocurrencies that, that, that have been used for ransomware. Interesting. So the, the key promise, of course, with CBDCs is that you can go into any bank and they will convert your digital money into physical currency whenever you want. That's the sort of vision of the future, that it's just sort of seamless back and forth. Of course, we're not fortune tellers here, but what do you think? Um, what do you think is the chances that we will see that widespread, and when? Yeah, I, I think what, when you see the chances uh, widespread, and when I think if you asked that question a couple of years ago, um, it would look like you know it's all probably a trial, and 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 uh, whether you would probably see a, a real life adoption is a question mark. But if you look at what's happening to date. As you have mentioned, uh, there is at least two jurisdictions that we're aware of, the Bahamas and the East Caribbean, that have actually issued CBDC, not relying on, on, on blockchain, but more relying on their current payment rails, that they are able to show that, that you can actually use existing payment rails to enable CBDCs uh, to promote financial inclusion because quite a number of those users may not necessarily have a bank account, most people do have a mobile phone these days, and the mobile phone in future could be one of your means of payment because if the C if, if it's if it's stored if it's uh, contained the CBDC it could be used as a means of payment. Now to your point, whether we will see a CBDC issued in any of the real economies, um, what we do see in in terms of the plans uh, is that China, for example. They have done 70 trials to date, approximately, if not more, of, of, in various cities and in different forms. And they are preparing for a limited launch of, of a CBDC in time for the Winter Olympics in Beijing in, in a couple of months. Uh, I believe it's in the month of February of 2022. You would see at least uh, how CBDC is being used with respect to athletes uh, that, that, that converge for the Winter Olympics. And I think in, in the context of Europe, Christian um, Lagarde, as recent as a couple of weeks ago, have said that uh, this, the ECB right now, the European Central Bank, is in the investigative phase for the next 24 months to look at the functionality um, and, and the use cases for, for a digital euro. And I think at the end of the 24 months, they will then formally then decide whether to issue a CBDC within a five-year time frame. So if, if, if the investigative period proved that there is a strong case for CBDC, i.e. that the European citizens wants it, there's a need for it, uh, what the ECB wants to do is to be able to be ready to serve the consumer uh, in that sense. Because I think what they see now is, as I mentioned, um, a, a confluence of factors, reduction in the usage of cash, physical notes, 
increased digital payment, emergence of cryptocurrencies, and the adoption of stable coins, which actually has, has, has spurred central banks to act together to provide a central bank digital money in a digital format as a real alternative uh, with respect to some of these uh, sort of non-legal tender monies. I think the, the, the goal for CBDC is to provide uh, money that is safe, uh, has settlement finality, it's a legal tender, and he has the backing of the central banks that have issued those central the central banks money. Mm. So this it might seem like we're talking about this very abstract concept that's that's nowhere close. But in reality, our listeners could see this coming into play in the next five to ten years, certainly. Um, and it will just it will be a whole new world with respect to government issued money. Yes, I think the ultimate goal for, for, for the CBDC out there is to preserve the best elements of the current banking or financial system, but at the same time, allowing for a safe space for innovation. Because I think the regulators do realize that in keeping with times, you can't just use banknotes. If you look at a lot of people these days, when we have access to uh, you know, your, your, your mobile payments method, you know, one would question how often do you actually go to a bank to withdraw money these days? You can actually make payments online. You can easily make payment using various options right now using a mobile phone or any mobile device. And I think what central banks are concerned about is if they don't provide a, a, a digital money, uh, people in future might just migrate to other forms of money that are less safe uh, and uh, you know, could create a, a too big to fail uh, a scenario which which obviously is a concern for central banks. Right, and we're all familiar with that scenario in the US. Um, yep. th that's all very interesting. I, I want to switch gears and talk about a different, but also very hot topic in the cryptocurrency world, um, non-fungible tokens, NFTs. I spoke on this podcast briefly about these several episodes ago and the explosion that we've seen, but as an initial matter, can you tell us what an NFT actually is? Yeah, I think an NFT, as you know, it stands for non-fungible tokens, right? I think, I think the key here is the word non-fungible. As you know, with, with monies, money is fungible. The fact that you, you, if you and I were to uh, park our money in the same account, uh, at the end of the day, the same money could be used for many purposes. So non-fungible token is, is a token or digital assets uh, leveraging on blockchain or digital uh, or uh, distributed ledger technology that enables uh, a sort of a, a holder of, of the non-fungible token to own an asset or an intangible that, that, uh, that is unique um, and uh, it, it's not fungible, i.e. it's not interchangeable with another assets. And I think you could see that in, in collectibles, in arts, in real estate, uh, in, in especially in, in you know NBA top shops, as you see, uh, if you look at uh, you know some of the innovative ideas out there, is now moving from a what is deemed as collectible or arts or gaming. NFT now has actually morphed towards the institutional space, and and I think to think of an NFT is is a token that that uh, in simplest sense that you hold 
uh, that provides a, a, a unique features or unique, unique uh, uh, sort of uh, digital assets. And, and I think the, the, the thing to bear in mind, NFT is not a legal term. It's a term, of, uh, it's a term used in the market quite loosely. Uh, I think whoever is the holder or investor of any NFT needs to make sure that, you know, as with anything else, what you're, what you're purchasing is what they represent and, and, and whether you own that, that title or property to that, to that NFT. So there have been occasion, for example, uh, with, with digital art, where someone take a picture and then claim that, uh, you know, you own an NFT. Uh, mm-hmm. I think one needs to be cautious that, look, you know, if you want to own an NFT, whether you actually own the underlying assets or a title to the, to the, to the data that, that, that is contained in usually a smart contract. So in, in a simplistic sense, um, what we see in Explosion NFT, it, it opens avenues for creativity in a number of uh, assets that are currently not capable uh, in, in the real world of, of being tokenized. But, but with cryptographic technology, blockchain technology, uh, it, it allows for a digitalization of, of certain assets and also it allows for fractional ownership of some of these uh, digital tokens or digital assets. You said something very interesting there, which is about this potential fraud because you think you have an NFT, but really you just have a picture. I, w- I want to explain this a little bit for the, for the listeners. So for example, th- w- there's a set of very valuable NFTs called CryptoPunks, which Correct me if I if I'm wrong, but I I believe the reason that they are valuable is because they were among the first NFTs to be minted back in 2017 or something like this. And what they are is essentially stick figures with various attributes that look like they were drawn in MS Paint. They're very rudimentary, but they're very valuable. Some of them have sold recently for over a million dollars, and People then put them as their Twitter avatar or, or or their phone picture or something like this. But you, you, it's just a picture when they put it as their Twitter avatar. That doesn't mean they actually own it. Anybody can make their picture a crypto punk. What is it? What is the difference between having the picture of the crypto punk and actually owning the NFT? Yeah, I think there's a main difference. Um, if you have a picture of a crypto punk. Right. The, the thing is, right now, is most of the NFT doesn't have real life presence. Right. Some of them, like native types of crypto, crypto uh, native, it, it only exists in a digitized form. Right. So, so if you look at NFT, there are two types of NFT. One, where you have an underlying physical, uh, physical presence or other assets. And and uh, the other sort of concept on NFT is it it it, it exists in its native condition. So I think it's important to make, make sure that regardless of the two modes, the important thing is, do you have ownership rights to the, to the NFT itself, which is the digital native NFT, but in the context of, let's say, an original copy of artwork, uh, do you actually have intellectual property rights to, to the underlying art, right? So what we see now is is that a lot of people are confusing two different concepts just because they purchase nft does not necessarily mean you actually own the underlying uh, uh sort of uh, whether it's a picture or whether it's a collectible whether it's an asset because if you look at for example um what actually do you own when you buy an nft 
buyers most often are getting mainly bragging rights and the right to display an NFT as a sole owner. In most cases, the buyers are not actually buying the intellectual property right like copyrights or trademark. But what they have is a right to display the collectible on the internet or, for example, figuratively hanging on a wall in their home. So when we look at whether you actually have an NFT ownership, one needs to look at the um, smart contract metadata and see whether what specific terms does the holder have that's been conveyed by, to the NFT owner. And, and I think it's important because in some NFT, you do have rights and ownership. In sometimes NFT in their smart contracts, all you get is just a license to use. So, so like, as I mentioned, it's very important to have an eye for details. What exactly are you buying? Mm. Yeah. So what, I, I mentioned this already. We've seen some absolutely outrageously high valuations on some of these NFTs, the crypto punks I spoke about. There's um there's been ether rocks, what's called ether rocks that are just pictures of rocks that have sold for seven figures. There's the famous $69 million sale, but through Christie's of a NFT uh, artwork done by the artist Beeple. Why are these little digital pictures worth millions of dollars? Yeah, I think in some, I would hazard a guess, in some instance, like, you know, some of these uh, uh, digital art or NFT is unique. And, and you see that in most of them, are, uh, when they sell for a high price, uh, usually there is a famous artist that is associated with it. Or, for example, it, they have features that are unique um, and, uh, and it's scarce. And I think one of the things that is important, most of these uh, is limited in addition. And that's what also driving the value. Um, and if you look at the Ether Rock, as you, the name implies, you have a JPEG to a cartoon rock built and sold on the Ethereum blockchain. And they only have 100 of those out there. So the scarcity value may probably be driving up the value itself. But having said that, I think when, when you are going to be an investor or holder, as I mentioned earlier, it's important to know what exactly what rights do you exactly have when you purchase an NFT. I think beyond the hype, uh, one needs to know whether you know, it's going to hold its value. Like Cyberpunk is one of the earliest NFT. Everyone knows it. Um, there are unique features in it. Um, obviously, the scarcity, the uniqueness does drive some value, right? It's like, it's like art, right? The next purchaser, if they're willing to pay more than the original purchaser, the value goes up. Having said that, if, you, if the purchaser doesn't have someone else to sell to, then eventually you might be stuck with a largely an illiquid uh, sort of NFT, so to speak. So I think, I think uh, this is something that um, one needs to sort of have a holistic view in terms of looking at what actually are you buying an NFT. Now, the bar on the NFT out for sale, there was a study done recently. Uh, beyond the headlines, most of the NFT are sold for $200 US. In, 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 there's a survey done uh, by Clyde Woods, and one third of the NFT is less than, one third of the NFT in terms of numbers are less than $100. And then half of the NFT sold are less than $200. So when you are dispensing $100, $200, you don't really go to the sort of the length of to look at what actually do you buy because it's like people buying a, a, you know, um, a ticket to, to a concert or, or buying a, 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 a present, 
if the value is, is of a small value, people probably perhaps will lose their guard are not going to do in all the checks. But if you're paying thousands, if not millions of dollars, I think it's important to know what exactly are you buying, what rights do you have as an NFT holder, and whether uh, you know, there's only risk of, 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 of duplication. As I mentioned, with the rise in NFT, there's also concerns about uh, copycats. Uh, there have been cases where NFT have been sold in other websites purporting to be from the original owner, but it turns out to be a fraudulent person. Um, and, and I think there are also cases where pictures were taken purportedly to be unique. It turns out that they're actually not unique. So, so I, think in, I think with that, with anything else, when you purchase things of value, one needs to be cautious in terms of who you're dealing with. Is it a legitimate platform you're purchasing from? Is it guaranteed? Uh, you know, whether there's any veracity, also a certificate of authentication that comes with it. So mm. I think that, that are the sort of key concerns one needs to bear in mind. Just like with traditional collectibles. Um, exactly. And we're starting to see what really widespread adoption. Um, DraftKings has come out with partnering with athletes and releasing different series of autographed NFTs where the athlete has done a digital autograph. We're also starting to see at football games, they're giving free NFTs with each ticket. Um, my hometown basketball team, the Philadelphia 76ers, just announced a partnership with Crypto.com and they're gonna be giving away NFTs at games. As these become more and more widespread, do you expect the valuations to start to go down a little bit? I think for some that are like mass market, some of them will go down, but, but NFT is, is, a, is, a, is a movement. So I didn't think when, you, like I said, NFT is not seen as a, 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 a limiting. I think what NFT have done for a lot of the, the artists, for a lot of the, uh, you know, the creator of people in the ecosystem, it creates a, it provides an innovative concept to create a buzz around your, in the case of digital art, sports. And it's actually a movement because what it does is also create greater brand awareness and value in a, in a different way of doing it. So, so I think if you look at NFT in ticketing, especially, NFT provide a bridge, a divide between a physical and digital ticketing, but with a, with a difference, because it could come with certain incentive, it could come with certain features or certain types of collectibles that people see value in it. So and I think that's the attraction of NFT. It, it actually allows and provides a new dimension for you know, brand, influencer, uh, you know, advertisers, organizers to actually mint uh, or, 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 or issue NFTs alongside their usual way of doing it. It creates the buzz and also it creates brand value loyalty with respect to some of these brands. Even Coca-Cola, as you know, we all know what Coca-Cola is. They're actually in the NFT space. About a month and a half ago, they issued the first NFT Coca-Cola where if you purchase the, the, the NFT, it comes with it uh, certain uh, rare uh, Coca-Cola collectibles. Uh, there are certain other incentive that comes with it. And you could see that traditional brand values are also embracing NFT uh, to create brand awareness in a digital sense towards a, a new class of, 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 of people who are tech savvy, who are largely in the crypto, uh, crypto space. 
So, so yeah, there's actually use cases for these things, aside from just art and collectibles, like you said, ticketing or brand awareness. Um, so, so we might be just scratching the surface right now. Yep. Completely. Um, and I think the other thing that people might bear in mind, NFT now is being also being used in uh, digital fashion. Um, some of you might be aware that uh, brands like uh, Louis Vuitton, uh, you have Burberry's. They have also recently embraced NFT uh, in terms of issuing um, some of their fashions, whether it's handbags, whether it's shoes, sneakers. And there are sneakers out there that actually cost more than the physical sneakers. So <laughs> it, it, because some of the sneakers in an NFT form, it's unique. It's one of its kind. Uh, there's a huge demand to own that. Um, and uh, it, it actually is, it costs more than the physical equivalent of a particular shoes or sneakers or fashion. That, that's really funny because of course you can't wear uh, an NFT on your feet. So, yep. Uh, what, in this digital world, there's still sort of old school or analog problems, of course. Um, just recently, we saw OpenSea, which is the, the number one platform in, in terms of selling NFTs, had an insider that was doing what was called front-running the NFTs. They were, they were buying up NFTs just before they were set to be featured on OpenSea, which would in turn drive up the prices, and then they would sell them. Um, th this was, is very disturbing, of course, to the sort of crypto and NFT ecosystem. As these things get more omnipresent and more valuable, do you think we're going to see more fraud like this? And what can we do? What can the the ecosystem do to push back against it? Yeah, I think what the ecosystem to do is, is perhaps coming up with better governance, disclosure, and also ensuring that um, you know, in, you know, whether it's purchaser, investors, or people involved, that we have one sort of a set of governance like you know, best practices and good principles. Two, um, if, you, if you look at some of the NFT out there right now, they are actually, uh, in recent times, they are actually not NFT in a traditional sense as collectibles. Some of them are dressed up as what is deemed as uh, ICOs, so initial coin offering, because there have been a few NFT out there that basically is a fundraising in substance, but they're not really you're not purchasing a product uh, right at the outset. So all they're doing is that they're coming to you and say, you know what, I have an idea uh, in terms of creating an NFT. However, I need X amount to raise funding so that I can create an NFT. Then in itself, it's not your NFT. You're not purchasing anything at the outset. So that could also run the risk of falling within what we call fundraising. And that's, that's where it gets interesting because if it's a security in nature, that's where the SEC will come uh, and look at it very closely to say, are you doing fundraising uh, any, and, and, and for which they are not licensed? And, and I think that this, this is getting a, a very interesting space. As you know, when you have a sort of an NFT boom, you also attract less uh, sort of elegant players in the market. And therefore, I think it's important for the ecosystem to be sustainable, to come to sort of raise its enter in terms of raising the standards, in terms of ensuring that the NFT stays close to its original purpose, not deviate to things like uh, fundraising 
or enter into acts that 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 could violate any of the laws, securities laws and regulations in a particular country. Mm. That was a expert transition you just did into our last topic, which I want to briefly discuss because we only have a few minutes left. But we're seeing in the U.S. and you're and you're based in Singapore. And thank yeah. you again. Um, just so everyone knows, John is recording this at. God, it's close to midnight over in Singapore there. So, th so there's some major commitment to this podcast. Um, yep. So in the U.S., though, um, the head of the SEC, Gary Gensler, has given several talks recently. He testified before Congress. He did an interview with The Washington Post a few days ago. And he's indicated that the SEC is going to be sort of aggressively regulating cryptocurrencies and tokens. And he suggested that pretty much any cryptocurrency and any token should be considered a security and regulated by the SEC for consumer protection. Um, at the same time, we're seeing bills in Congress, such as the infrastructure bill that contains um, stringent crypto reporting requirements for all sorts of um, um, crypto businesses in this space. What do you think this sort of attention from regulators is going to sort of precipitate in the crypto economy in the coming months? Yeah, I, I think in the coming months, there are a couple of things that, that we see. Obviously, what I'm telling you is public anyway. Um, as we know earlier, I mentioned about the US Presidential Working Group led by Janet Yellen, uh, the US Treasury Secretary there would be a, uh, what is public, they eventually make that, that information out there that the, there will be a US uh, framework for stable coins. Uh, it's a matter of time before they issue some sort of framework out there soon. The second thing that Gary Gensler said in, in its last week uh, appearance before the Senate Banking Committee is he, the, he talked about the need to regulate cryptocurrencies. And I think uh, what he's asking for is obviously uh, enhanced powers from Congress to sort of empower uh, the SEC uh, to, to look into the space. And I think um, I've been following him quite closely in some of the public uh, forums. And I think what he's saying is that at, at this point in time um, for, for spot, i.e. spot cryptocurrencies largely, Unless it, it's 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 in the realm of 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 security, largely it's not a within the domain of SEC, uh, and 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 I think uh, there are certain gray areas of over, over overlapping uh, oversight from SEC, CFTC, OCC, as you can see from some of the recent cryptocurrency regulations out there, and I think there is a need now uh, among U.S. regulators to think about whether there should be a a federal level sort of of crypto laws that is progressive in nature, where you enable innovation, but at the same time, uh, you know, take steps to address some of the concerns with respect to anti-money laundering, uh, using it for uh, you know illicit activities, and I think I think that that healthy tension needs to be balanced because as I mentioned, digital assets is not just about cryptocurrencies. As I mentioned there are a lot of use cases, especially in uh, the trade finance world in in capital markets where they're used as a means of cutting down on 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 operational risks relating to paperwork, uh, fraud risk relating to fraudulent payments or or documentation, and I think that sort of uh, types of innovation should be encouraged. Mm. 
one thing that happened this week, um, in, you, you spoke about Gary Gensler. The SEC actually served somebody with legal papers that was appearing at a conference on cryptocurrency in New York. And they said, oh, you're going to need to come in and testify before the SEC, which some would say is going to have a chilling effect on this whole economy. Um, on the other hand, the sort of pro-regulation folks would say, well, consumer protection is everything. The SEC is an independent agency, and their only job is to protect people from getting scammed. So this really, this really can't hurt. So that I think getting to the right balance there is gonna is gonna be very interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, I think it's important to 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 as you note that by and large in the crypto space, uh, with the exception of people registering, operators registering themselves uh, under the AML regime, by and large is still lightly regulated. And I think that's where, when increasingly more and more people adopt or, or use cryptocurrencies or digital assets in, in, in the form of payment. And I think that's where there is a lot of focus in ensuring that consumer protection and also investor protections uh, are maintained. Because I think uh, otherwise, there's no recourse. If you look at some of the recent SEC enforcement, it, 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 it targets a lot of operators, in particular operators that, 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 that are not licensed or conduct activities in a fraudulent manner, i.e. misrepresent the, the nature of their 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 their, their you know, their purpose, and also in, in some instances, just outright fraud, i.e. they raise funding, but they do not undertake the activities for which uh, the funding was raised. And I, I think in the context of cryptocurrencies or crypto-related sort of activities. Mm. On the fraud, the fraud front, this is my last question for you. We recently saw um, one of the DeFi platforms, although the name is escaping me, that was hacked and something like $500 million in cryptocurrency was taken by the hackers. And then we saw over the next few days, the hackers giving the money back to the platform. Cause, and the platform said, we're willing to pay you a fee for showing us this loophole in our security, but please give us the money back. And I think last I checked, they had given back most of the money. Do you have any idea why that is? Why would someone that successfully stole 500 million in cryptocurrency just give it back? Yeah, I, I think I think you're referring to uh, Poly Network, which is the uh, DeFi platform, an anonymous-run cryptocurrency project that was the victim of the biggest uh, hacks or theft in the DeFi world. Uh, mm. One of the concerns, I think, one of the things that you raised is interesting, is because as soon as they were hacked, uh, there was a lot of uh, sort of information went, went out in Twitter, went out to a lot of uh, the what we call the custodian and also the uh, some of the large players where they started to sort of act to block the transfers. And it's, and it's a lot of people might be aware that when you transfer cryptocurrencies in a decentralized form, uh, i.e. the blockchain, it's not anonymous, it's pseudo-anonymous. So in a sense that you might you might have the serial number of a particular public water, water address, but at the same time you can actually see the movement of those cryptocurrencies. So when Polygon was hacked to the tune of hundreds of millions, it was just too large for someone to just move funds without being traced, because with uh, quite a number of uh, uh, sort of uh, crypto data analysis firms out there right now, 
uh, they have very good uh, data analytics that you could actually look at uh, how, how funds are being moved. And very quickly, uh, a number of large exchanges, crypto operators collaborated with regulators to actually block the, the, the transfer in an account. And with that, I feel that the, the heat was too, too big for some of these uh, the hackers to basically ignore. So I think if you'd see that, uh, what was interesting is um, uh, the uh, both the, the the poly network as well as the hacker were communicating anonymously in terms of how to return uh, the funds. I think um, last count, most of the funds were returned. But but it goes to show that uh, DeFi with anything else, uh, you need to make sure that you have good. Um, technology that is secure uh, because it would be subjected to hacks. But I think in the context of, of hackers as well, uh, the days of them operating anonymously where they can move funds easily, I think it's slowly shrinking, uh, especially with large uh, theft or hacks like that, because you could be traced easily with, with better analytics that we see out there right now. Interesting. So it wasn't just purely altruistic that they gave the money back. It was well, we, we might get caught, so we better make a deal. Yeah, I, I think it's the, the, the true life somewhere in between. Um, given that this is not a, this is not a public domain, what, what was what transpired, but I do recall uh, one of the sort of sweetener in terms of the uh, sort of the, the, the outreach was please return the money and uh, p- perhaps there was a, a truce, i.e. that they will not pursue further. So mm-hmm. I, we have yet to hear what is going to happen, whether uh, based on the evidence to date that there will be some enforcement. The key to that is uh, the identity of the hacker is still unknown to date, at least publicly. Interesting. John Ho, thank you so much for joining. Is there a place where people can read your work or find you, maybe a Twitter handle or something like that? Sure. Um, well, you can find me on, on, on LinkedIn. Uh, so I, I do constantly post uh, regulatory updates on, on stable coins, on digital assets, on NFTs, uh, which are more educational in nature uh, to share with the community because I think it's important for people to have a level of awareness uh, such that uh, you probably be able to sort of make informed choices uh, and also uh, largely you know, increase your know-how in this area. So I started uh, a couple of years ago pretty green in this area, but because I have interests, uh, I have, you know, connected with people that that share information. So I benefited from 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 those community, and I think with that backdrop, you know, I think uh, sharing know-how, exchange information. I think the more we do that, uh, I think the better for the community because both of us, all of us, learn uh, new things in life, and and especially in this area of digital assets, NFT, it's pretty exciting. But you need to make sure that one needs to be uh, able to distinguish between genuine, legitimate sort of initiative as opposed to those that uh, is, is fraudulent in nature. I, I would echo that people should ch- definitely check out John's LinkedIn page because there's lots of great posts and I've learned a lot just from following it myself. So thank you again for joining. This has been The Better's Verdict. As always, this is not legal advice, and especially this episode is not investment advice, um, you know, but it's for entertainment purposes, and I hope that everybody has learned something. If you want to reach me, I'm available on Twitter at Stephen B. Jacobs, 
or at steven.jacobs at hsf.com. That's Herbert Smith Freehills, hsf.com. John, thanks again. Welcome. Thanks, Stephen.